that you would grant us grace even now uh, to listen. You've said that this salvation is great. We mustn't neglect it. First and foremost, that means that we must pay exclusive attention to that word that comes to us from Christ himself. Since your word in Hebrews is the word of Christ himself, I pray that you would enable us to hear, to listen, to pay attention to, to follow. So I pray that you'd work this in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Hebrews in chapter 2. Hebrews in chapter 2. I want to read verses 5 through 10, really. Verses 5 through 10. Hebrews in chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's all today. As we've been reading through this book of Hebrews so far, and just the introduction, it's, it's really in a sense a sermon, it's a letter, but it's really this brief writing, as he calls it, this sermon sort of that he's presenting. You'll notice it's a little different than a lot of the New Testament letters in that it doesn't start with a greeting, but it just simply starts, and it's as if he's providing an introduction. We're still sort of in the in- introduction to this, and he's made two uh, salient points thus far, and that is, first, that Christ is superior. That is, Christ is superior. His, his message is superior to the prophets. His name is superior to the angels. He's above all. Christ is superior. Thus, we should pay exclusive attention to him. Thus, we should listen to him. And then secondly, this, that this salvation that he brings is great. Therefore, we should not neglect it. Those two points so far, Christ is superior and this salvation that he brings is great. Therefore, we should not neglect it. We should pay attention to it. We should not neglect it. And this is an important word to us. In fact, so important, this word, it's a means of grace to us. That is, it's God's way of working in us to strengthen us, to keep us. Because you see, the great danger for us, a great danger for us, is that we will find voices that seem to us to be more superior than Christ, seem to us to be greater than Him, seem to us to be able to satisfy other than Christ Himself. And that temptation exists in the context of life all the time. In fact, Solomon wrote of some such temptations as he walked us through this Old Testament book we call Ecclesiastes. He explored pleasure. He explored wisdom and knowledge. 
He explored wealth and power to see if they could be more powerful, more satisfying, more completing than God himself. And what he found was that they really weren't. You always wanted more. You always needed more. If it was wealth, you needed just a little bit more. If it was power, you just needed a little bit more in order to feel safe and secure and all of that. If it was intelligence and education, you didn't quite have enough. Even though he became as wise as a man could become, it appears still he was unable to straighten that which was already crooked. It seemed that generation after generation, human beings continued to fall into the same traps. And so he said, that really isn't this. Plus, there's this thing that's hanging out there that thwarts every attempt and thwarts everything to satisfaction. And it's called death. Because at the end of it, you die. No matter how smart you were, no matter how wise you have been, no matter how powerful you have become, still at the end of all that, death seems to win. Death seems to conquer. And everything that you've had is either forgotten, again, try to remember, the name of your great-great-grandfather or even great-grandfather and try to remember then what that person achieved in the course of his life and you realize it doesn't take very long for us to forget these things. So he said, it really doesn't matter then, really, does it? It's all vanity apart from the value that God is and God brings to the context of our lives. Jesus said, don't be deceived by riches. Don't be deceived by all that that seems like it can make you secure, that seems like it can make you happy outside of what God brings in the context of your life. We're to be satisfied by Christ and only that which he brings and only that which pleases him and nothing else. When we find ourselves satisfied by these other things, we're in great trouble. We're drifting away from this great salvation. And it isn't that wealth and power and all of that, education, intelligence, it isn't that that's inherently evil. God desires for us to be satisfied, filled with joy. God desires us to be wise. God desires to provide for us and all of that. But the key is when those things are divorced from Christ himself, divorced from God, then you see they become idols to us. And, and we actually think that they, those things, are what is satisfying us and we forget God, we worship them and not Him and thus we begin to drift away. And so this word to us is very, very important that Christ is in fact superior to everything. That He's superior to everything because He's the very Son of God so we should trust Him. We should allow our lives to be defined by Him and directed by Him and, and He's the one in whom we should ultimately find our greatest, supreme and only really delight. And not only that, but this salvation that he brings is great because he's made purifications for sins. It's easy for us to forget that we've been saved from the wrath of God. See, there are times, especially when times are good, that we begin to think that, that maybe we weren't so bad. That, that maybe the problem wasn't so severe. That, that, that maybe we are a little better than we think. And that we really deserve all of this. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses warns the people right before they're going into the promised land. He says, listen, be careful when you come into this land of plenty. Because it won't be very long until you begin to think that it was your strength and your power and your wisdom that gave you this wealth. And you'll forget God. See the great danger. And there are other times when, when life gets so difficult. 
that we begin to think, is it really worth it, this whole salvation? Is it really that great? Because we see people dying and we see people suffering and we experience that even in the context of our own lives. And we begin to wonder, is this salvation really that great? So we need to be pulled back. We need to be reminded that this is the great salvation. You remember maybe Psalm 73, a very significant psalm for us. The psalmist begins by, by fretting. He says, my, my foot almost slipped. That is, I almost drifted away from God. And the reason he almost drifted away is because he saw the prosperity of the unrighteous. And he began to envy them. And he began to think, here I am, a child of God. Here I am, trying to live righteously. And I'm losing money. And my health is deteriorating. And I've got all these troubles. And I look across the street. And there's my neighbor who doesn't attempt at all to follow after God, and yet he seems to be healthy and rich. So therefore, why is it that I'm following after God in the first place? And so then God brings him into the sanctuary, and he begins to see things from an eternal perspective. And then he says, oh, but then I saw their destiny. See, that's why the word of God is so crucial to us. Because life comes against us. It comes against our faith. Satan comes against our faith. The world comes against our faith. Even that which is naturally in us, that is our natural sinful inclinations, are against believing, against trusting. And that's the power of the Word of God. That's why it just seems to me it's good to memorize some scripture. Um, Psalm 119, verse 11. I memorized it in the King James Version that says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. In the English Standard Version, which I'm twisting my mind to memorize these days, is that your word have I stored up in my heart that I might not sin against you. Same Hebrew word, just little nuanced differently. When the King James Version thinks of hiding this word in your heart, it means, as the New American Standard has it, it's highly treasured, and so we need to tuck it away deep so it never leaves, so it's hidden in there in the recesses, so the enemy can't find it and ferret it out and get it out and move it out, so it's always there. And yet the English Standard Version reminds us that it's there for a purpose. It's been stored there to be used at just the right time. And so this is the value of the Word of God, you see. This is why we need, and this is my summer paranoia coming out, so just hang in there with me. This is why we need to continue every Sunday together. If you're not in town this summer and you're traveling, please find a church to worship. Because that's the way God has made us, you see. In his creation, he ordained that every seventh day we cease from work and we gather and we enjoy him. And if we don't do that, then something will be missing from our life. We will have missed an irreplaceable means of grace. We only get 52 of these each year. We only get these Sundays, these times of rest. And we never know when persecution may come and we're going to miss them. Because you don't need to be here to listen to me. I don't need you for that. You don't need me for that. But we need together to be reminded to hear the word of God. Because if not, then we begin to drift whether we, whether we even know it or not. That's the great danger, you see. 
And so it's significant for us in every one of these 52 blessing, the blessings that God gives us as this day to take advantage of that, to be reminded, because starting tomorrow, <laughs> maybe even starting when you leave here, maybe it's already started, but you're going to begin to drift, you're going to begin to, 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 to get tempted to see things that glitter and think they're God. Or you're going to become discouraged by that which affronts you and begin to think perhaps this isn't worth it. And it's these moments, and then the little nibbles we get through the week, it's these moments that keep us. This is the God-ordained way. This isn't a holy day of obligation in the sense that God's keeping score and at the end you get a pin for perfect attendance. It's that you need it now as a means of grace in order to walk with Him. So the author of Hebrews says, I want you to, I want you to know this. I'm gonna, this is going to be a recurring thing, perhaps the recurring thing throughout all of the book of Hebrews. That Christ is superior. And that this salvation is great. Now, as we come to this particular portion that I read this morning, there's an aspect to the superiority of Christ that we must see. And there's an aspect to the greatness of this salvation that, that we might miss unless he lays it out for us. So beginning in verse 5, he, he says now, and if you have a new international version, it says for. But the point is, given all that I've said, realize this. Given all that I've said about the superiority of Christ, given all that I've said about the greatness of this salvation, you need to know this too. Because if you don't know this, then you might drift away. But if you do know this, this is the kind of thing that will keep you latched on to the superiority of Christ and this great salvation. So you won't be tempted to drift away. So he says, now, it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we're speaking. Now, that raises an interesting question. Alright? To whom has the world to come been subjected? Well, he answers first in the negative and says it's not to the angels. And so we expect, of course, the answer to be Jesus. Because Jesus is the answer to every question that Christians ask. Quite an easy quiz every day. The answer is always Jesus. Somehow it's connected through by him. And so we expect him to talk about Jesus. But there is a world to come and we expect it as this world to be subjected to Christ. Because you see, when we die now, before the world to come comes, when we die now, when believers die now, they, their bodies decay. Either in the ground or by cremation, or if it's a death of the sea or under the water, the bodies decay. But our souls slash spirits go to be in the presence of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, to the effect when we're out of the body, that is, we're dead, but before we get our new body, we're out of the body, we're in the presence of the Lord. And you can read through the Scripture in various places, especially in the book of Revelation, and you get glimpses and reports of the souls in heaven. Now, I don't know what a disembodied soul looks like. I think it probably looks better than a disembodied soul. At least that's what I'm hoping. But when the new body comes, you see, then we're certainly recognizable as human beings. And so there's what theologians call this intermediate state, this state of disembodiment. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, those first 10, 13 verses, that's what that's about, this disembodied state. How this disembodied state is better than this bodied state, but not as good as the ultimate 
resurrected state. You follow all that. But after Christ returns, there is a world to come. And it isn't that we live in heaven for all eternity. We actually live for eternity. I was going to say most of eternity, but you know, as eternity comes and it sort of pales everything else, and I don't know what that does. But we live for eternity on a new earth with a new heavens around us. For instance, Isaiah spoke of this in Isaiah in chapter 65. In verse 17, as Isaiah is running through various prophetic words. God is speaking through him. And God says this, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And so you get this sense now that Isaiah is on this track. He's talking about the world to come. New heavens, new earth. And then in the New Testament, Peter very explicitly speaks of it in 2 Peter and chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. 2 Peter and chapter 3, verse 13. Peter writes, now, oops, that was 1 Peter, but I'll read that. Then let me read beginning with verse 11. Hmm. 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then we see the fruition of that in Revelation in chapter 22. Beginning with verse 1. I'm sorry, Revelation 21, beginning with verse 1. This is what John sees. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, he will dwell with them, and so forth. And so, what we're anticipating... At the very end, you see, when, when Jesus returns and we get our resurrected bodies and, and the earth is judged and all of that and all that's done, there'll be an earth renewed. And it will, there'll be no sin there. Just think about that for a minute. And we'll live there on that earth. And so the question that the author of Hebrews is raising, to whom will this world be subjected? And again, we expect him to answer the question by simply saying Jesus. But he turns us a bit before he gets there. He'll get there, but he turns us a bit before he gets there. And what he does is that he quotes part of Psalm 8, which I read as our call to worship. Turn there quickly, Psalm number 8. And the reason that I say he turns our head a bit is because this psalm, at least in its original understanding, its original intent, isn't about Jesus, but about us. It's about human beings. And so it begins there. And it's a wonderful psalm. It's a psalm of praise for God's creation. And I read it as a call to worship, but let's read it again. Psalm number 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens, uh, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger, 
Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Think of that. See, all of that reflects the greatness, the majesty, the glory of God. Romans 1 says it shows his power and his wisdom. Because who else could do all that? You get this sense, David writing this psalm, this shepherd boy. You get this sense that there must have been some times when he was laying out, when he was taking care of the sheep, that he would lay on his back and he would look up. I don't know if you remember doing that as a kid. Maybe you still do that from time to time. Now, I have a particular thing. I've never had this analyzed by a doctor. And if you're a doctor, I still don't care for you to analyze, analyze this, especially if you're a psychiatrist. But, but I get dizzy when I, when I do things like that. When I, like if I climb to the top of a mountain in Colorado, I, I simply, I, I've learned I can't do that. Because I get up there, no matter how wide the place is, when I look up and I see the vastness of all of that, inside me, I get dizzy. Same is true if I go on a roof, so I don't do that. Al does all my roofing. Because <laughs> he's learned how to overcome his fear. I, I don't know about my... When I get up there, I simply get dizzy, you see. I get dizzy. And when I do that, if I stand... Have you ever gone to the arch in St. Louis? If I stand with my back against the arch and I look up, I get dizzy. And the same thing is when I'm in a field and I leave and lay on the ground and I look up and all that vastness, it personally dizzies me. Now that's a real pain when our family's in Colorado and I only climb three-fourths of the mountain and I sit there. The good news is I get the M&Ms and they go on. But the, um, I, but the wonder for me, the greatness for me is it reminds me of Psalm 8 because then I really do think of the vastness and the dizziness of the creation. And there's a being, God, who's bigger than that, vaster than that, whom this simply reflects. And I think how dizzy I certainly will be in his presence. And what captures the imagination of David at this point, as he begins to think about the vastness of God's creation, who is this being who's able to speak a star into existence, the moon into existence, the earth into existence. This being who can do that, how is it that at the same time he can be mindful of this shepherd boy lying in this field in the midst of all this? How can he care for David? How can he care for us? And so here we have juxtaposed on the one hand the insignificance, the smallness, the humility of human beings, and on the other hand the dignity, the value an amazing thing and he says what is man in the midst of all this that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor how can that how can that be and you see the glory and honor with which we human beings have been crowned is the very fact that we were created in his image all of creation reflects God, and that's wonderful and good. The birds reflect God in some sense. The, the, the animals, the dogs and the cats and the cows and the bulls, the flowers, the daffodils, and all of that reflect the glory of God. But we, in a particular way, because we've been crowned with the very image of God, to reflect Him and to reflect His greatness and reflect His righteousness 
and holiness. You see, that's what distinguishes us from the rest of creation. We're here to reflect the righteousness and the holiness of God, to show His love, to show what love is like as we reflect the very love of God, to show what justice is like as we reflect the very justice of God, to reflect what mercy is like as we reflect the very mercy of God. You see, as people see us, they're to see the closest thing to the image of God, the closest thing to God is as He's made. That we're to be able to reflect, to reflect Him. And you see, that's our value, that's our worth. The danger for human beings is that we have a tendency to think that we're of absolute worth, but we're not. Our worth is only derived by the one who's made us, by the one whose glory we reflect. I see, that's, that's often, it, and I would say always, but I'm not smart enough to think about examples, so I'll just simply say, that's often true. If you hear of a great artist having painted a painting, you want to go see it. Why? Because the painting will reflect in some the glory of the artist. You say, that's a great artist. His work is great. This will be great. When I hear that J.I. Packer or Oz Guinness or John Stott or one of these guys has written a new book, it excites me, Jerry Bridges, because I think, oh, this will be great because it will reflect them because their book is a reflection of who they are. And you see, our worth, our value is because we are to reflect the glory of God. That's why life is so valuable to us, all the way from the unborn to the dying, all the way from the weak to the strong. Life is valuable to us. Why? Because it's the image of God. And so David is thinking, how is it? that you've crowned us with such glory and honor that we might reflect your glory. And then he goes on to say this, you've put all things under his feet. Turn quickly to Genesis in chapter 1. We're building here, so just build with me for a while. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Remember, the end result of all this is to see greater, uh, see more clearly the superiority of Christ, that nothing else would tempt us to think it's greater than he. And remember, this is to tell us about this great salvation. There's a twist to this that's simply amazing. I'll even run out of words to, in just trying to describe it. And it will be one of the things that will keep us walking with Christ. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is creation account. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the, uh, fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said... Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and morning. It was morning, the sixth day. You see, God has set all of this up, and he said, I'm going to crown him being being in honor. Under me they'll have dominion over my creation. And everything, in a sense, will serve human beings and everything will be for their benefit and blessing. 
And human beings, therefore, in their rule, in their dominion, were to reflect God. They were to reflect his goodness, his righteousness, his justice. And they were to rule like that. And they would have the knowledge that everything that God had created would be there for their good, for their benefit, for their blessing. And they were to receive it from him as such. And they were to rule over it as such, to be the very blessing of God to them. And thus everything would submit to human beings on the face of the earth, nothing being more powerful, nothing able to overtake them. Keep your finger there. Turn back to Hebrews in chapter 2. Because we're finished with the quote that the author of Hebrews takes concerning Psalm 8. So in the middle of verse 8, let me just begin with verse 6 just to catch us up so you can see this quote. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You have uh, crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then backs off from the quote, describes it like this. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he let nothing outside his control. All right, we understand that in the context of Adam and Eve, that nothing was outside their control on the earth. At present, we do not everything in subjection to him. And we would agree with that as well. I mean, think about our lives. Not everything is in subjection to us. And the reason not everything is in subjection to us as it once was, for Adam and Eve, is because they sinned and now we live in a fallen world as fallen people. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, everything got turned on its ear. And while they still had the inclination dominion, and that still was their place in the context, no longer was righteousness within them that they might rule in righteousness and holiness. And thus their rule then became a rule of deceit, a rule of wickedness. And thus we, we see in the context of human beings, on the face of the earth, the rule is that often the exploitation of the poor by the rich, of the ignorant by the intelligent of the weak by the strong. We see that all the time. We see little cooperation in the context of love, but just a, you know, a movement of self-interest and self-centeredness and all of what was to be has been turned on its ear. This is that. We simply see it. And we understand that, that because of the creation, the curse that fell caused the earth and the world to fight back in a way that often it would win. That in the context of human relationships of husband and wife, there was no long natural love of headship and submission, but yet there was contention that would enter into the marriage relationship. And even though Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply, and every human being after them now, within the context of childbearing, there would be pain, because you see, it wouldn't just be a natural dominion, a natural subjection, this childbearing. Now it began to fight back. And we would also realize that the ground was cursed. And so making a living and growing things and being able to eat and being able to material prosper would, would be difficult as well. And that isn't to mention even all the natural disasters and hurricanes and earthquakes and all of that which come against us over which we seem to be not so powerful. And our inclination still is to take dominion over all of this. But we realize no matter how much we produce and how much we make and all the antidotes to every difficulty that comes our way, still there's another one that comes. Life is like a computer virus, isn't it? That every time we get one figured out, another one comes. We have to figure that out as well. 
So we always feel behind the eight ball. We don't feel as if we're in dominion that we can stand up and beat our chest and say, we've got this under control. There is that one thing that seems to win all the time. And that's death. It always wins. No matter what else, it wins. No matter how many antibiotics, no matter how good our surgery gets, no matter how good our diagnosis gets, no matter how we grow in learning about our bodies and live more healthy and eat better and all that kinds of stuff, still death seems to be victorious every single life. And thus, how is it that we can have dominion when we die? How is it that we can really have dominion over the earth when the earth always, in some sense, wins? There's something here that's going to kill us. It's going to get in us. And we will die. So we do not see, at the present time, all things under our feet in subjection to us. As you would expect reading Genesis 1, it was true for Adam and Eve, because the fall came that turned everything on its ear. And so the question is then, what is man, what is mankind that God is mindful of us? Well then, as we're reading along, middle of verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Then verse 9 says, but. It's always the but. Jesus is always the but of the sentences throughout the scripture. It's always the but Jesus, or always the but God. It's, it's always this but. Verse 9, but. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, just in case we miss it, I don't want to be too subtle here, but we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might test, taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. See, all of a sudden, as always, our attention is turned from us to God. Our attention is turned from us to Christ. And it's saying, listen, this is to be true of you, and look at how you failed. Look how the fall blew all of this. Your great creation was marred the image of God that you are to reveal, to show, to manifest, and having dominion over the earth has been tainted, has been broken. So what is the hope? The hope, of course, is Christ. He comes, and he's made like us, a little lower than the angels. He's made like us. And he's crowned with glory and honor. He isn't crowned with glory and honor by his becoming man, necessarily, because he already has glory and honor, because... He's the exact radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. But what crowns him with glory and honor is that he comes and he takes dominion. As we are to take dominion and nothing beats him. He takes dominion over nature. And when nature acts up, all he has to say is peace be still. He has dominion. Nature doesn't beat him. The, the disciples in the boat with Jesus were overtaken by nature. They did not have dominion. And I don't know about you, but when I was a little kid, we used to play Jesus games all the time. Please forgive us. But we would try to walk on water. 
we'd go out on rainy days and say, be still, you know, that sort of thing. And it never worked. Right? Because we didn't have dominion. It wasn't subjected unto our feet at that point in time. But you get the sense, and I don't know if this is true, this may be going too far from Scripture, but I get, you get the sense in the Garden of Eden, Adam had a measure of control, he had dominion over that place. It served him. And, and I don't mean in an exploitive way, because it was serving him as creation would serve one who ruled it righteously. This isn't an exploitive thing of anything in the context of the earth. That's just simply the way it was meant to be. The earth was happiest, if we could say that, when it was blessing Adam, but then turned against him in the context of the curse. And Adam turned against it and began to rule unrighteously. Now Jesus comes and he takes dominion, he says to, to, the, to the storm, be still. He takes dominion over hunger and he takes just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish you got the sense that Jesus didn't even need that but he just sort of was helping them as an object lesson this is what I'm going to do but you got the sense that he could just make the rocks into bread if he really wanted to or anything he took dominion at that point in time you're hungry that's alright because the ground isn't going to keep you from eating the weeds aren't going to fester in such a way that it'll keep the wheat from growing and so here I just used here's food <clears throat> took dominion over unrighteousness and wickedness by living righteously loving and revealing the very mercy and justice and grace and love of God and nothing stopped him when unrighteousness would rear its head when temptation would come towards him he would just stop it but he would move along righteously and overcome it when sickness came, he could speak a word and it would be healed. When death came, he would speak a word and someone, Lazarus, would become alive. And even in the context of his own life, even as he died, he conquered sin and death. At that moment in time, he conquered everything that kept us from the very place that God wanted us to be, which is in the very bosom of God, which is in the very presence of God, which is in the very heart of God, which is in the very place that he had for us, and that is to take dominion over the earth. And that, you see, is amazing, this great salvation. Who, to whom, is the world to come subjected? The answer is Jesus slash us. Now, that's an amazing thing. Because, you see, what Jesus has come to do, and this great salvation is restored to us all that was lost by the fall, to restore the relationship with God that was lost by the fall, so there's no longer any hostility between him and us, that we're together, he made purifications for sin, he saved us from the wrath of God. But not only that, the author of Hebrews is telling us, that that's great, but the greatness of the salvation also includes a day when the world to come comes. And in the context of the world to come, when it comes to realize that all of creation will go back to be doing what it was made to do, and that is to bless us. And that's just unspeakable. I don't even know what, how to say that in a way that doesn't sound arrogant, in a way that doesn't sound prideful, in a way that doesn't sound wrong. It just is right because that's how the Bible begins and that's how the Bible ends, for instance. Turn to Romans in chapter 8. In verse 16, to begin with.
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Do you realize we're going to go and suddenly see his glory? But we are too, as Psalm 8 says, be crowned with glory and honor. Turn to 2 Timothy in chapter 2, verse 11. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Do you understand that there's a sense in which because we're in Christ now, with him now, we're ruling and reigning. The scripture in Hebrews chapter 1 says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21 says that that, that God exalted him above all things and, and made everything in subjection to him under his feet. But then in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we're reminded that we've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. You get the sense that this is beginning the now, that spiritually we rule and reign with Christ. We still don't see everything under our feet. In fact, we don't even really see everything under his feet. Well, it just doesn't look that way, does it? Death still happens. But yet even now, we realize that we're ruling and reigning with Christ. We're ruling and reigning with Him as we pray. Do you understand the power that we have in the context of prayer? It's not an absolute power, it's a derived power. We only pray for those things which are agreeable to His will. That is, that's what we're supposed to be praying, things that are agreeable to His will. And you see, as we do that, there's a sense in which we're ruling and reigning with Christ even now. As we give out the gospel, the very power of God unto salvation to all who believe, that comes from our being united to Christ, being seated with Him in heavenly places, if you will, spiritually, as He rules and reigns. And so, as we give out the gospel, you need to have in your mind the very fact that this is ruling and reigning with Christ, that this is the Word of God, and it's powerful, and as it seeks its own, it brings salvation and that we have a part of in some sense in ruling and reigning with Christ over the salvation which he brings. And even as we live righteously, do you understand that we're ruling and reigning with Christ in the context of this earth, that the reversal of what he brings is starting now in the transformation of our own lives. And even as we rule and reign righteously, as we stand up against hatred and injustice, and as we bring love and mercy in the context of people's lives, do you understand that's ruling and reigning with Christ, all of that encompassing the kingdom of God, his rule. I gave you about three weeks of theology. That we rule and reign with Christ even now, but in the world to come, we rule and reign with Christ in a way where nothing fights back. Right now, we rule and reign in the context of even suffering. And we live by faith, trusting that because Christ rules and we with him, that everything will work together for good. That's an act of faith. We don't see, and we don't, don't see how that's going to happen necessarily. But yet we trust that that's happening. That in the midst of this, as we live with Christ and him and us, that Everything is subjected to him 
and therefore to us in such a way that good will come. But a day will come when there will be no suffering and the world is happiest and we're most joyful and God is ruling and thus in Christ over the world and everything it brings, it delightfully brings to our good. Turn to Revelation in chapter 22 in verse 1. This is at the very end, this is the world to come. This is John, what he's seeing. Then, turn to this because you need to see this. This will be a passage that will get you through life. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city and also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Again, where, where did the tree of life first show up? But in the Garden of Eden, the, the old earth, in its glory, the new earth to come glorified. The earth knew, the earth renewed, right? Still the tree of life. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any, anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and its servants will worship Him. And they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their lights, and they will reign forever and ever, collectively all. Us, over the earth, under God. And you may say, convince me. And the convincing is this, that he tasted death for us. Because you see, the final enemy, I didn't have time to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 22. To the end of the chapter, read that this afternoon. But the final enemy is death itself, of course. And death still comes. Difficulties still come. And thus we live by faith. We live trusting that all this is true. And the word to us is that Jesus tasted death for us and therefore he made purification for sins. Therefore we're forgiven in him. Therefore we're seated with him in heavenly places. Therefore we begin ruling and reigning with him now through prayer and the gospel and living righteously. And the day will come when he returns and the world is renewed and we'll find our rightful place precisely where we need to be. And that is dominion over the earth, the earth blessing us, and us blessing God. And all of this is predicated on Jesus conquering not only nature, not only unrighteousness, not only sickness, but death. And there was a night that Jesus met with his disciples and he took bread and after giving thanks he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup after giving thanks he gave this to his disciples and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the remission of sins do this in remembrance of me and one of the things we must remember is that when he tasted death for us and brought forgiveness of sins purification of sins he restored 
began the restoration process of everything that was lost. That's how great this salvation is. Great. You see, that when things come against us that seem to have dominion over us, when the power of temptation comes and it seems to have dominion over us, and when the power to destroy life comes against us and it seems to have dominion over us, and even in the context when we see sickness and disease and tragedy and death, we can simply stand with Psalm 8 and say, My destiny is to live. My destiny is to be restored. My destiny, I just lay this with you, is to be crowned with glory and honor. Not to be God, but to be in the very place in God and under God that we were meant to be. And the author of Hebrews would say, that only comes because Christ is superior to every enemy. And that only comes because this salvation is that great. Don't neglect it. Don't let this world discourage you. Don't let all the things that seem bigger than you take you out. But stand and say, no, 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 no. This is my destiny in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, neither death nor life, nor principalities or powers, or anything and this life can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And we know that in this great salvation that all will be made right. And what are we that you're mindful of us even to crown us with glory and honor the image which you're restoring in us now the dominion that we shall no. It is a great salvation, even too great for us, even, I suspect, to imagine but imprinted deeply upon us so that they might walk with Christ. Take this bread and juice, I pray, right now. and Set it apart for your use, and you've told us what use you have of it, and that is that we might experience Christ here with us through it. And thus I pray that you would grant us faith to believe that he tasted death, that we might live and rule and reign with him. Do that, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, evangelical church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight that is needing purification from sins. Sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And you receive and depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel that is the very power of God unto salvation. To all who believe. And you believe. And that you desire now to live a life as becomes a follower of Christ and I would add anticipating that day when you shall see it. 
So I invite these two sections to come down this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and if it helps you think this, he tasted death for me, and then taste his. Please come. Pray with me, Father in heaven. I pray now that all the benefits that are ours, because we are the ones who are the sons that Christ will bring to glory, those for whom he has tasted death. And I pray that individually together we can stand before everything that comes against us to destroy us, be it temptations from Satan, be it the oppression of others, be it the indignities which we suffer, even as we walk with Christ in this world, for those who don't understand and those who stand against us. And even as sickness comes and even as death comes, that we can stand knowing that that which comes against us is not our destiny, but our destiny in Christ is amazingly to be crowned with glory and honor. And we know that we will throw all of these crowns at his feet. For he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. May we walk in all that and live right there. And Father, we even pray as we give this morning, even as our offering is given, I pray that this kingdom of God rules and reigns through this giving, that it goes places that will help bring the kingdom to relieve difficulties and distress, most especially for those who are ensnared by Satan and ensnared by sin and under the curse. And I pray that it would free the captives and bring them to Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The response to our benediction is to sing together the doxology. Please receive this as God's, def God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine, through his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore, and together let us sing. Amen.